Let's just take a moment, if you'll close your eyes, just put your hand on your heart, and just breathe in deeply. Be still ourselves. Be still. Anything that has created confusion, anything that has created frustration, anything that we have brought into this place, we declare this morning, be still our souls. Father, we ask that you would send forth your spirit in extra measure, that you would pour out living water upon your people who are here to seek your name, the people that you call by name, that call you Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would overwhelm us and overshadow us with your word and your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is such a pleasure to be with you all this morning. It is just a really wonderful gift to see faces and to come together and to see people without their masks on and to see people laughing and gathering and, and touching and beginning to come out of this dark cave that we have been in. I want to begin with Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the trees. The Lord God is Elohim, creator God, maker of heaven and earth. And he has created the fullness of the earth. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And this is the part I want to get to because this is what I heard this morning at 5 a.m. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen. I heard that, and then I said, Lord, what is it? What are you saying to me this morning? You know, I was laughing because, um, when, is that your name? Yes. We were talking about how you're all prepared and ready to have a talk, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and oh, we do a little, and you know, I'm so excited because I'm ready to roll, and I've got everything, and the Lord moves and shapes and recreates what we think are good messages so that we can get out of his way and he can have his way. And that's the psalm I got this morning. And here's the picture that he showed me. It was a picture of some of you knocking on the door. Lord, where are you? It was a picture of some of us, because I include myself, that had a key in the hand, in your hand, and said, I have the key, but I'm not going inside. And then there was another picture, and actually the Lord said this was me, and it sort of broke my heart. There are some that have taken the key, opened the door, and they're standing in the vestibule. They're standing in the front foyer, if you will. And I went, Lord, is that me? I wouldn't be standing here. I would just barrel all in with my personality. I'd be in. He said, no. There's more. He said, I want my people to come in 
And this is a sense I had, not an audible voice, just inside of me, praying to the Lord. He gives me this psalm. He said, I want them to come in all the way into the dining room, all the way into that space and that place, because I have set before these ladies a feast. Some of them are outside starving to death. Some of them have the key in their hand, and they just don't want to use it because fear or whatever it may be. But I want every single one of them, when they leave here today, to have come in and feasted. Feasted in worship. Feasted on my word. Feasted in my presence. Feasted in my word. And together fellowshipping one another. That we could go to the banquet table and no longer be starving. Does that identify? Do any of you identify with any of those? When you leave, my prayer is that needle would have moved somewhat, that perhaps those of you who are outside knocking will get the key. Maybe some of you have the key, will go on inside, but I am really hoping, sisters in Christ, that all of us will enter in to the dining room and partake of the feast that he set before us. I wanna begin with this email. I love this particular one. It actually came out maybe in 2015, but it seems so appropriate in our pandemic mode, hopefully post-pandemic, are we moving out of that? As we progress into 2021, I wanna thank you all for your educational emails over the past year. I am totally messed up now and I have little chance of recovery. I can no longer open a bathroom door without using a paper towel, nor let the waitress put lemon slices in my ice water without worrying about the bacteria on the, come on now. You know you have felt this way. You're using your foot and your elbow and no lemons. I know, I know, it's me too. Eating a little snack sends me on a guilt trip because I can only imagine how many gallons of trans fat I've consumed over the years. I can't touch any women's handbag for fear she's placed it on the floor of a public toilet. <laughs> also, now I have to scrub the top of every can I open for the same reason. I cannot eat at KFC because their chickens are actually horrible mutant freaks with no eyes and no feathers. <laughs> Who writes this stuff? <laughs> I can't use cancer-causing deodorants even though I smell like a water buffalo on a hot day. <laughs> This, is, this one's my favorite. This one is my favorite. Thanks to you, I have learned that my prayers only get answered if I forward an email to seven of my friends and make a wish within five minutes. <laughs> yeah, you've gotten those emails. <laughs> because of your concern, I no longer drink Coca-Cola because it can remove toilet stains. <laughs> I no longer buy fuel. Now, this one, my daughter. This one, my daughter just died over because this is her totally. I no longer buy fuel without taking someone along to watch the car so a serial killer doesn't crawl in my back seat <laughs> when I'm filling up. I no longer use cling wrap in the microwave because it causes seven different types of cancer. I no longer go to shopping centers because someone will drug me with a perfume sample and rob me. And I no longer answer the phone because someone will ask me to dial a number for which I will get a huge phone bill with calls to Jamaica, Uganda, etc. I can't do any gardening because I'm afraid I'll get bitten by the violin spider and my hand will fall off. If you don't send this email to at least 144,000 people, in the next 70 minutes, a large dove with diarrhea will land on your head 
At 5 p.m. tomorrow afternoon, and the fleas from 120 camels will infest your back, causing you to grow a hairy bump. I know this will occur because it actually happened to a friend of my next-door neighbor's ex-mother-in-law's husband's second mother best friend. Yeah, you know why we can laugh, don't you? What world do we live in? What world do we live in? We live in a world that induces fear. It's a fear-inducing world. Everything we see, everything we hear, it just drives me nuts. It is meant to produce anxiety by whom? By the enemy of your soul. Sisters, he is after us. And as Christians, he doesn't like you or me at all. He wants to wear us out to take our defenses down so that fear can come knocking on your door and on my door. Now, I use this analogy a lot. I don't know if any of you are in my Drawing Near to God classes or not or have been in them, but I use this because it's a very poignant picture of fear because fear and faith cannot coexist. And the message for this morning is faith moving forward as we begin to move out of this dark time that we've been in and into the light, we begin to, to note that perhaps our faith has been worn down a bit. Perhaps you're tired or worn out or fatigued. So we want to see this analogy because fear and, fear and faith can't exist together. Fear comes knocking on the door of your spiritual space, if you will, of, your, of where the Holy Spirit dwells. In your internal God space, fear knocks on the door. You with me? Knock, knock, knock. Can I come in, fear says. And you go, nope, can't let fear in. The word of God says, the perfect love of Christ will cast out fear. And so it is, Selah, and that is truth. But then he knocks again and he goes, look, I don't really want to come in. Just slip a little bit of water to me because I'm thirsty. God's perfect love casts out fear, but God also says to love, let me give him a little sip of water. Knock, knock, knock. You squeeze in, let the water go out. Knock, 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 I'm hungry. Oh my goodness, fear, when are you going to leave me alone? I've quoted that scripture 10,000 times. The problem is that the word of God is powerful and it is effective. The, the problem is, do we really believe it? And so he knocks again and suddenly you open the door and you give him a snack. And he goes, I am so tired. I am so tired. Can I just come into your living room? Think internal, Holy Spirit space, the place where Christ is moving in your heart. And he says, if I can just come in, I'll just stay for a moment and I'll just sit in a chair. And before you know it, he's lounging in your living room. He's got his feet up like this. He's eating a snack, drinking, and fear has taken over your life. And I think it's a very poignant picture. And we do it sometimes without even realizing it. And this last year, just like the funny email, has brought in so much anxiety and fear. And yet today, you all are coming into a place and a space where God is in our midst and he's moving so that your faith and my faith can press on, move forward, because that is why God has gathered us to, to de together today. This talk's going to be divided, this first one, into three parts. And you know what, Patricia? I forgot my um, time so I want you to go ahead and you can do like this because I, I forgot my watch. With phones anymore, you hardly look at your watches. I've always got my phone. Yes. Well, look at there. <laughs> and I can actually see that. 
I do wish I could tell you, I wish I had all day. I wish I could tell you about a dream I had about a clock. It was a prophetic dream, the most remarkable thing. But that's for another day. Invite me back, I'll tell you about the dream. I actually have another dream I will tell you about. Three parts. When are we supposed to end? 1025? Okay. Okie dokie. Okay. All right, I'll make my next one really short. Three, um, three things. Laying a foundation for this, this time that we have together. First thing we're going to be answering is what is faith? The second is we're going to recognize that the enemy is trying to thwart our faith. And he's used this past year somewhat to do that. And he comes in with his three deadly Ds, doubt, discouragement, and distraction. We're going to look at that. And the third thing we'll be talking about in this session, examining the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man returns to earth, will I find faith on the earth? Will I find faith? So let's just dig right in. Definition of faith, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Now, Matthew 17 and Luke 17 describe the faith of a mustard seed. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to here. Nothing's impossible with God. So we understand that it, all it takes is a little seed of faith. But here's the important thing. And if you leave with this one thing, it is very significant today. Jesus is describing the smallest of seeds for a reason. He's saying that little tiny seed is all you need. But here's the point. It's directing our attention not to the quantity or the strength of our faith, but to the object of our faith. Our faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed. And our faith must be placed in Christ alone. And so the, the Lord has used this season of all the difficulties that we've had. He's used this season for us to shift our faith off of other things and back onto him. I call it a correction in the church, a place where we're getting back. You know, sometimes you just have to be in the trenches in order to begin to move forward again. We all need that little boost. So with this understanding of faith in mind, we note the biblical definition of faith in Hebrews 11 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Most of you can quote this. The conviction of things not seen. In other words, our confidence and our faith comes in the object of our faith, and that is Christ alone. Where we get off the path, certainly where I get off the path, is when my faith is in myself or in the circumstances, or I can make this right, and then this will happen. And everything seems to crumble. But the minute I reposition myself and I place my faith directly back on Christ, everything comes back into order. Chaos turns into order. Faith involves risk. Putting our trust in God's promises. John Piper defines risk this way. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. So right on the front end, we understand that often people of faith, when we take a risk, it feels like we're afraid. There's injury or loss possibly. Very little happens, however, of any significance in an individual life or the life of our churches or family or an organization that does not involve risk. So faith equates with risks 
and it increases fear, and that is why we have to deal with fear. If our faith's going to move on, then we have to bring our faith underneath the power of the cross. Not only does faith require a risk and a willingness to step out and trust, but faith has to be persistent and tenacious. You know, I grew up in a household that, um, well, I'll just put it out there. I, I, was raised, I am Greek. You can probably tell because I use my hands a lot. But um, I... I'm in a family system that is pretty persistent. My daddy taught me how to be persistent. He was a physician locally, and he always taught me, even as a little girl, just be persistent. If you feel like God's calling you to do something, do it. Just be persistent and tenacious. If you get off the path, the Lord will put you back on the path, but better to risk and try something and fail than never to try anything. Better to assume that your good daddy, your Abba daddy, will put you back on the right track than saying, I don't want to take the risk. There were two frogs, another email, and they were in a can of cream. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use? The number, the number one frog says, they're both in this cream. And he says, I'm just going to die. You know, what's the use? I can't swim my way out of there. He's weeping and he drowns. The other frog, however, of sterner stuff starts dog paddling. I'll just keep swimming. I'll just keep swimming for a little while. It won't help the world if there's one less frog, right? An hour or more, he's kicking mute. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't mutter. He just keeps on persistently swimming. He hops out from the island he makes from fresh churned butter. That's our trials, folks. That's our trials. That's what increases our faith. Persistent tenacity, never quit attitude, just like the frogs. Anyone long associated with the church of the last 50 years, especially in America, knows that our problems don't result from a lack of information. You know, we're on overload information. Honestly, doesn't lack for material strength. If we fail in achieving what God wants from us, it's because we're giving up. Let's just sit, put a pause button on that. If something isn't happening in the church, it's because we're giving up. We're tired. We've become complacent. I went on a trip to Africa with Bishop Steve Wood, my priest, and um, at St. Andrew's Mount Pleasant. And I was speaking at the cathedral in Nairobi, and also with 2,000 women that were in blue and white. It was a remarkable sight, but here's the thing that touched me. I had an interpreter there. I could hardly get my words out. As I looked out at the sea of women, they had come all from across Kenya. They had walked, they had come in buses, they had been without food. They had been without anything. They took their resources to come and hear this message that God had delivered to me to give to them. It was without a doubt the most moving experience I have ever had in my life. Why? Because these people's faith was God was going to show up. They came with a sense of expect expectancy. They came not knowing these are some of them. I guarantee you they gave up a meal or more to get there. You see, in the United States of America, our worst enemy is that we have too much. 
It's easy, you all, and I'm preaching to the choir here. It's easy to be complacent when you have so much. These people who needed a meal, they needed to hear from God. I had a friend who also went to Africa. She placed hands on someone that was totally deaf. I will never forget this. And their ears opened. They could hear for the first time. Why? Because they're like desperate. Do you think maybe, possibly, the Lord is doing something in the church today to help us? And again, I say this all the time. It's in, it's in one of my books out there in the introduction. Church, we need to wake up, we need to rise up, and we need to grow up. And as the Lord is so good to us, he is allowing this in his church in this hour because we are, in Christ, the hope of the world. Let that be a sobering thought, my sisters. We, in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are the hope of the world. The hope isn't, and I'm in a family of medicines, so, so anybody that's in medicine, don't hear this wrong. I, our hope isn't in medicine. Our hope, certainly God uses doctors. I've watched him use my father. My son is in, just finished up medical school, on and on. Here's the point. Our hope ultimately is in Christ who uses doctors. It is in circumstances in which God orchestrates in him and with him and through him, all things were made. So everything comes and emanates from God. Persistence, tenacity of faith. I want to tell you a little story. I was in Idaho. This is funny. My, my husband is an amateur photographer, um, and he... I'm his, like, assistant, I guess. So he has a backpack, and I have a backpack, and we went to Idaho uh, years ago, about six years ago, we went to Idaho, and we were climbing because we wanted to see hollyhocks. We had heard that the hollyhocks, after 100 years, the seeds were in the ground for 100 years, has to be the perfect circumstances. It has to have a forest burn, just enough light, just enough water, rain, and we happened to be in Idaho right there when they were in full bloom. Now, I knew from the Lord, just praying about it, I knew that there was something, a divine appointment for me to be there for Blunt, my husband to be there, etc. We get there and we start climbing up that mountain. And we climb up the mountain and I'm exhausted. I said, I am so tired of being your Sherpa, carrying all your, I'm like this, you know, and he's just, I mean, the tripod and the heavy bag, and you know, equipment like that's heavy. And so we got halfway up the mountain and all of a sudden we saw hollyhocks and I was like, yes, and I throw the backpack. You're not supposed to do that with camera equipment. I throw the backpack down, I'm sweating like this. And he, and, and he says, I don't think this is it. I said, yes, it is. Look, it's beautiful. Take pictures. I sat down. So he pulls out his camera and he's taking pictures. And a woman comes from up the mountain. I'm promising you, she must have been 110 years old. She is, she is bouncing down the mountain with her cane. And she comes to where we are and she looks to the left and looks to the right. She sees us sitting there and she says, what are you doing? I said, we climbed up halfway up this mountain. I'm exhausted. She said, I made it up. I said, what did you do? Were you jet, you know, did you take a jet up there or what? She said, you know what? The best is yet to come. Don't stop here. Climb higher. Y'all, we stop too short. If God, if it has to be a pandemic, social and political unrest, if that's what it takes for the church to be the hope of the world, Amen. If that's what it takes for us to reposition and recognize that this is as good as God has it for the world, us, 
I climbed up, very begrudgingly, I might add. My husband still talks about my mouth behind him. We got to the very top of the mountain. Y'all, I've never seen anything like it in my life. What we saw halfway wasn't an eighth of what God wanted us to see up there. I had another experience in Idaho. That's why I knew it was a down. I got to stop telling stories and get to my thing. <laughs> um, I'll tell you that one later too. Lots, lots, of, lots of good stories. Hallelujah. Thank you. Divine appointment here. Divine time. Is this when Joshua, when he asked his son to, to stop, to sit still? In Daniel 7 and Revelation 7, we see something that is very key. It talks, the word talks about the wearing down of the saints. The wearing down, the grinding wearing down. It gets tiring. It gets discouraging to be that frog in the cream, to go against the cultural norm, to be the city on the hill, to, to try to, to be who we're called to be when there's so many things coming at us. We've had quite a year. If COVID wasn't enough, political unrest, social unrest, loss, loss of lives, jobs, we've had a tough year, but God. One of my friends didn't tell me, but at Christmas time, she had a sign made because I've said, but God, for the last 30 years of teaching to the point where she just was like, ha, huh, and put it in my planter. It was six months later, I realized it. We are. I know, I'm not, a, I'm not much of a detail girl. I don't notice things right away. We are in a but God moment. Take that to the bank, y'all. We're in a but God moment. We're in a moment where we shine. We're in a moment where our complacency is being shed with a newfound resolve, and we'll talk more about that in the second talk. An astronomical number of young Christians are leaving the faith after they leave the nest. A recent New Life research survey shows that two-thirds of Christian youth stop attending church for at least a year or two between the ages of 18 and 22. We need to help our youth wrestle with their faith and press on with their faith and not giving up halfway and help them up the mountain with our canes if we have to, to see the view that God wants them to have. We need to help them climb. We need to help them contend with the faith. Jude 3 writes this way, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend for the faith. We are in a contend for the faith, but God moment. And not only do we need to help our youth, but frankly, we need to help ourselves. We need to help ourselves up that mountain so that we can see the magnificent view that the Lord has for us. Let me tell you something. If the enemy can keep us in the valley, sometimes it's the, it's the devil, your flesh, the world, whatever it may be, can keep you in the valley. You will never get, we will never get a God perspective. If he can say, okay, okay, this Christian is really just a radical Christian. She's not going to stay in the valley. But I tell you what we'll get her to do. We'll get her to go halfway up so that she sees just enough not to be a threat to the counterfeit kingdom. But if we, if she starts climbing up that mountain and contending for the faith and sees what God wants her to see and hear what God wants her to hear, watch out world because the world will be in trouble in a good way. We have something to do, folks. 
We have a mountain to climb, but Christ will climb it with us. But there are three deadly deeds that threaten our world. One is doubt, discouragement, and distraction. Those are the three. Doubt, discouragement, and distraction. And this year has certainly done that to us. What the enemy, however, intends for evil, God intends for good. If he allowed it, he allowed it for a purpose. Here's the problem. We're using the wrong weapons. Just let that sink in for a minute. Scripture says the weapons we fight with are not, 2 Corinthians 10, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. God's weapons are not of this world. We need to pick up the right weapons. Anger, distrust, anxiety, shame, regret. You name it and all the other things that have come at us this past year. Using that sword is a blunted sword that the world gives us. But God has given us weapons that are of his making. Weapons of prayer, weapons of gathering together, weapons in the word, weapons of hearing his voice, divine weapons. So faith moving forward is dependent on our picking up the right weapons. Faith moving forward requires that we replace doubt with believing. Discouragement with encouragement, which means to put courage into one another. We need to do that. Never forsake assembling together to what? Encourage one another. Put courage back. We need to have courage once again. Distraction. We need to replace distraction with focus. These are actually action steps. I'm going to say them again. They're that important. We need to replace doubt with believing. How do we believe? More, get in the Word. Seek counsel from your friends. We need to replace discouragement, which dis means not, take courage out of, with encouragement, which means we need one another. We need to replace distractions with focus. We need to get back in alignment with God in a holy alliance, in a sacred alliance with Christ, where we, as the branch to the vine, are so intimately integrated and connected with him that no matter what's happening out here, and there's a lot happening, we are so tight with the Lord, we're getting our instructions from climbing the mountain. Digging a bit deeper into the meaning of faith, the Greek word is pistis. That word indicates a belief or conviction with the complementary idea of trust. Faith is not just an intellectual stance, but a belief that leads to action. James 2 puts it this way, 26. Faith apart from works is dead. And James talks about demonstrating his faith by works. Often what we do says more about what we believe than what we say. This is an hour then we have to take, that we have to take action and do as opposed to speaking and talking the talk. I am really good at talking the talk. I can say, Jesus is Lord. I can say this. But this morning, in my quiet time, the Lord called me short. He said, Joanne, you are in the vestibule. There's more and more and more for each of us as we grow in the Lord, 
as the Holy Spirit begins to move and have his being. Now, what does that mean? It means that we allow him to have space in our house. The enemy has crowded out our lives with lots of fear and anxiety this last year. Fear has tried to come in knocking on our doors. It's time to close that door. Don't give him water. Don't give him food. Don't let him in your living room. And allow the Holy Spirit to do something fresh in this hour a fresh wind, a fresh fire. We need to take the embers and the coals of our lives, and we do that by spending time with the Lord and figuring out how he's speaking to us, always through his word, often for me in the middle of the night, I will hear something. And I'll say, yes, Master. Yes, Adonai. I hear your voice. Have you cultivated a hearing of his voice? People say to me, Joanne, you just hear him all day long. No, I, I, have, I am not some supersonic somebody. I am you all. You are me. I've just been willing to pay the price and take the time to figure out his voice, how he speaks to me, how I'm wired. How are you wired? He'll speak to you that way. His word, allow his word to come alive. The word has got, had gotten so dry for me. The word had been a, okay, let me check it off the list. I'm going to do a one-year reading plan. That's great. But for me, it caused me to go into performance. Okay, today is the third. Oh, I missed. Let me do a real quick reading. Does anybody relate to any of this? That's not cultivating a relationship with our Abba. That's not cultivating a relationship in which his Holy Spirit is speaking all day long and we begin to tune in to the right station. The definition of faith, therefore, contains two aspects. One is an intellectual belief, an intellectual assent, and the other is trust. Trust, intellectual assent, is believing something to be true, and trust is actually relying on the fact that that something is true. And a chair, some of you have probably heard this analogy, a chair is often used to help illustrate this. Intellectual assent is recognizing that a chair is a chair for a purpose. It's, we're agreeing that it is designed to support you and I to sit in. However, trust is actually sitting in that chair. I can go all day long and intellectually assent to, yes, that chair is for that, this is the hour and the time that we must sit in that chair on the promises of God and trust that he is who he says he is and that you are and I am who he says we are and we begin to climb up to the second floor, to the third floor, up until we get to the perspective and view that God has for us. Because if we're going to be the hope of the world, we need to be the eyes and the ears of Christ on this earth. And we can't, if we're down here in the trenches with anxiety and frustration and anger, the, the verbiage, the rhetoric that I've heard this last year. Now, can I just take my mask off for a minute? Is that okay? I won't do anything scary. This year for me has been a wrestling match in a different way than I've ever been in my life. We're all experiencing our own wrestling matches, but for me... It has been a wrestling match where I have had people on both sides of the political aisle come to me. I've had people on all sorts of the denominational aisle come to me. I've had people on all sorts of white and Asians and, and 
People of color, come to me. I have seen something the likes of which I've never seen in all the years that I've loved Jesus. It has been prayed over me that I'm a bridge. And so I would expect some of that. But what I saw in the hurt and in the brokenness of the people whose heart I was called to hold was remarkable. What I saw was a need and a desire for someone to understand them, for someone to hear them. And where they really wanted that connect was within the church. They wanted us to be able to come together, a kingdom united again, with differences. Oh my goodness, so many differences. That's okay. We must believe in the main things, that Jesus came, that he was sent by God the Father. He was sent to die for our sins. He made a way for us and bridged the gap between the Father and our sinful nature. He came, he died, he was resurrected on the third day. And right now, amen, hallelujah, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Can we agree on that? If you tell me he wasn't raised from the dead, then we're not in partnership. If you tell me that he's not the Messiah, sorry, no alignment. But can we begin to come together and make Jesus Christ Lord of his church once again? I just taught a course. I was so excited. I hadn't written courses in quite a while, and I wrote one on Hebrews. And it took a pound of flesh to write that one. It's not out there now because it hasn't even been put in print or anything. Because last summer, when I went, was preparing to do it, I just finished studying. I said, now we're going to do some study notes. I heard the Holy Spirit's voice say, you're not going to teach Hebrews. I'm like, oh, I missed you. I did all that work for you, for you, Lord. <laughs> and I heard the wisp of a whisper from my, my Lord. And he said, I want you to teach on the kingdom. That wrestling match you've been through, it's for the purpose of teaching. So I taught, and I think that study guide is out there, on the kingdom is near. It has uh, streaming tapes that go with it, but it really rocked my world just being able to teach that and have a perspective from a wrestling match, having come to understand what the Lord wants to do once again in his church. In order for faith to move forward, there are four things we must remember. Number one, we must not, now this was interesting. When I was praying for you all about two weeks ago, this is what I heard. So I'm just gonna say it and you can massage it any way you wish, but this is what I heard specifically as I wrote it in my notes. We must not allow our decisions to be formed in the court of public opinion. Beware of what the culture is selling and force-feeding us. Feed on the word, feed on the word, feed on the word. Our plumb line is the word. Number two, we must be like Daniel, who would not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, only to his God. He was thrown into the den, lion's den, but guess what? His life was spared. God will not forsake us as we stand for biblical truth. When facing our cultural giants, we need to understand and appropriate the power of the cross. And this is the fourth one, and I especially am interested in this one. Last uh, Sunday, I preached over at St. Andrews on David and Goliath. And what I learned in order to prep for the sermon I listened to Malcolm Gladwell, a renowned author. I listened to his podcast. And he talked and gave historical facts about David and Goliath. Now remember, keep in mind, these are the points of faith to enable us to move forward. And his premise 
on this podcast was that we are not underdogs. That actually David was not an underdog, Goliath was. Now all the times I've heard this story and thought about this story, I think of little David, young shepherd boy, with his little sling and his little pebbles. It wasn't like that at all. It actually was a barium sulfate, a big, there were these heavy, heavy rocks that they had. And he was in the part of the army, there was infantry and there's artillery. He was in the part of the artillery, part of the, uh, in the Old Testament days, known as a slinger. He was a slinger. Listen, David was a sharp marksman. He took that thing and six or seven revolutions, more than the fastest baseball pitcher on the earth could pitch a ball, hits the, the giant right in the forehead. He could hit birds 200 feet up above. Let me tell you something. I used to read that as it was a little toy sling, little toy. This thing was massive. He had a pouch with two cords. He'd pull one cord. Sometimes they'd pull out a lead ball. In the case of, of our shepherd uh, turned King David, he pulled out his heavy, dense rock. Bam! That is who we are. Church, we got to figure this out. We are the giants. We're not the underdogs. We are the ones who have in our tool pocket, if you will, the sword of God that divides soul from spirit, bone from marrow. We have the tools that the Lord God has given us that are divine, that any enemy that comes against us, we stand and the most significant tool that we have is love because love covers a multitude of sins. And it's not natural love. Natural love wears out. After the honeymoon, bam, the love's wearing out. Now, I've been married 40 plus years, and I'm telling you right now that I love my husband more today than I did when I first met him at 15 years old. And the love has grown deeper and deeper, but that isn't enough love. Agape love is supernatural. It is above the natural. Our weapon that is the most significant that we need to pull out of our toolbox is the love of Christ, which we can only have if we allow the gates of glory to come in. Who is this King of glory? It's Jesus. If we allow him to come in and surrender, his love comes in with him, and that's the love that we pour out to our brothers and sisters in Christ that perhaps are driving us crazy. Perhaps they've been unjust. Perhaps they've been angry, and we have been the recipient of insults. You name it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love speaks the truth. Love doesn't back down. But true love, let me tell you something. People know when you're really loved. Don't you know when someone really loves you? I mean, it's a love that they shouldn't because you've done things wrong or whatever it might be. Why am I, why am I so obsessed with that clock up there now? I'm like obsessed with it. I can't even read it. I'm so nervous. What does it say? 1196? 1106. Sorry. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. This year of trial has probably been one of the best things that has ever happened to the church. Persecuted church, what did they do? They became a movement. Then after they became a movement, they took over the world. With Christianity, we're in that hour. It's okay. 
It's a good thing, and if we can go up the hollyhock path and see that what the enemy intended for evil, God intends for good, the view's incredible, that we can come down from the mountain with that perspective and we can begin to love people and help people meet our Savior. No wonder the enemy has trapped us with the deadly deeds. As we swim against the cultural norms, we may be persecuted for our faith, undoubtedly. But our response cannot be anger or doubt or disbelief. Our response is faith. Faith is not an apple we pick from a tree. Faith is a seed that grows into a tree, that grows into an apple, that grows into an orchard, and that seed has to be watered. I want to paint a picture as I begin to sort of wind this up, of faith when Paul talks about our inner eyes in Ephesians 1.18. He says, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Some of you may remember on June 23rd, 23, 2018, Ekapal Chantawang, 25-year-old youth soccer coach, took his players, they were ages 11 to 16, just to go on a little excursion to give them a little break from soccer. He said, we'll go in for an hour. They took a few flashlights. They took a rope. They went in. As soon as they go into the cave, the cave's entrance is flooded. Monsoons came much earlier than anticipated. These young boys and their coach were stuck. He took the rope and tried to get out. They pulled him back in. There was a search for the wild boars and their teammates was, an, was a global sensation. We heard it all over the news. The kids ultimately were found 2.5 miles from the cave's entrance. They assembled a team of Thai divers, expert cave divers, and two Brits, two British divers, and together they came up, they started to try to strategize, what do we do, how do we get them? The, even the current of the water was hard. The visibility was shrinking. Now remember, the point of this story is, open the eyes of our faith, Lord, our inner eyes. So this is a picture, a natural picture of that. We see these, these boys, they have no food. They're drinking water from the cave stalactites, and the oxygen was being reduced as the days waned on. The prime minister of Thailand said, I want this to be a no-risk operation. For one week, they're trying. What can we do with no risk? Finally, what transpires is that the two British divers say, it's going to be a risk. I hope we can get a few out. They agreed to this plan. The plan was this. They took the young boys and they said, are you willing for us? They brought a doctor in, a cave diver that was a doctor, multi-talented. Are you willing for us to sedate you? And one by one, the, the Thai seals and the Brits would take you out. Each boy agreed. The doctor taught the Navy SEALs how to administer the sedatives. The sedative, they took a plastic bottle and they showed them how, because the SEALs didn't know how to administer sedatives. The doctor gave the initial one, but as they went through the cave, it could have worn out. In fact, it did wear out on a couple of the little boys. They tied the boys' limbs together. They put them in a wetsuit, and one by one, they took them out. It took two weeks before all those boys were rescued. And by the time they were rescuing them, it was a much worse situation. There was zero visibility. You see where I'm going. Church, it appears that we have no visibility. 
Where are our moorings? We are called to be the church that rescues people with the message of the gospel. We are called to be those Navy SEALs and those divers, but we don't have any courage. We don't know how to administer sedatives. I'm ready to give a few people a sedative, I can tell you. <laughs> but here's the deal. We have been trained just like David the Slinger, just like the Thai Navy SEALs, just like the little old lady who was walking up. She'd gone up and down that mountain a thousand times. We have been equipped and trained. Have we forgotten that? As we begin to wake up and rise up and grow up, we begin to see that though our visibility seemingly is zero, we are finally in the state at which God says, hallelujah, my church is going to now walk by faith and not by sight. That's where we need to be. As I close out, if you'll look with me, if you have your scriptures at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we see the persistent widow. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither friend, neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps nagging and bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not bear, beat me down by her continual coming to me. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Are we crying to him day and night? As we cry to him, I love this message translation says, what makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who continue to cry out for help? Won't he stick up for them? If God is who he says he is, will he not hear your tenacious, persistent, nagging prayer? Because he loves you and me. And then Jesus says in that word in Luke, when the Son of Man returns, will I find that kind of persistent faith? So in summary, we have to keep climbing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith has to be in God's ability, not ours. And that's something we need to reposition. For me personally, that's why I'm in the vestibule. I think I've been trusting in my own ability to get her done. Church, it's time for us to walk by faith, to die to self, to move forward in our faith, to allow God to deal with the deeds, the, the distractions and the doubts. Talk about that next session. A faith that is willing to climb high. Jesus said, when I return, will I find this kind of faith? Amen. So how did you all do in your small groups? Did you work out in 30 seconds the rest of your lives? Yeah. It's um, one of the things I realized when I founded Drawing Near to God, which was 20 years ago. We have our 20th celebration this fall. One of the things I realized is that, you know, the fellowship, being able to work out in community the word. You know, being able, iron sharpens iron, and being able to, to, to talk about it and apply life uh, to, the, to the word. I think... For so many years, for me, the word was in my head. 
and I come from a family that very cerebral thinkers and doctors and you name it, you know, uh, scientists and teachers. And one day, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and um, very unexpectedly, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I sense the Lord has hijacked my talk yet again, <laughs> that I was um, attending as a, as a Greek Orthodox. I, you, you didn't necessarily go to other Bible studies, but somehow, um, I lo well, I loved my mother-in-law so much, and she told me about one um, over St. James Episcopal, I think is where it was, and I went over there and I heard something that was so fresh in the Word. And I told the priest afterwards that it had really touched my heart, and he said, well, come talk to me anytime. And actually, um, I did. And when I did, he prayed for me, and he said, I have a sense that you know the Father, your Abba, and that you know Jesus, but that there might be a gap in knowing the Holy Spirit. And I really didn't know what he was talking about, but he laid hands on me and he prayed for me and he said, Father, she knows you and loves you. And, and your son, she knows you and loves you. But would you just release over her life the power of the Holy Spirit? That spirit that came when she accepted Christ, would you just release it? Would you just, baptizo is the word in Greek, would you baptize and marinate and, and soak her in your presence so that this day she will never be the same? That night, I was very pregnant. That night, I was, my husband was on call, and I began, I was asleep, and I began to feel water in my veins. And it would be in my fingers and all the way down and then all the way back. You know how you go to the ocean and you can almost hear the ocean, the sound of the ocean? Well, I wanted to do that with my veins because it was definitively a water rushing sensation. Now, you're talking to somebody who knew less than nothing, um, don't really know a lot more now, but at that point in time, I had no idea. So I called my husband and he said, are you in labor or something wrong? I said, if labor is in your veins, then, <laughs> then I'm in labor. And he said, well, tell me your symptoms. You know how doctors do, give me your symptoms. I said, um, this is your baby in here. <laughs> Let's get a little nervous for me. He said, honey, you're fine. Maybe it's anxiety or something. I go back to sleep, and that's, that thing starts happening again. Two days later, I have the baby. The priest comes into the, the room. I looked at him walking in, and I said, what did you do to me? <laughs> and I told him, and he very gently and quietly opened up the scripture to John, is it six or seven, that says, and out of you will come rivers of living water. And he, I said, what? And he unpacked the scripture for me. Maybe some of you today needed to hear that. I don't tell that testimony a whole lot. And if it's you that needs, who hungers and thirsts for more of him, there's more available. It never runs out. It's an endless supply of his spirit available to you in spite of the pandemic, in spite of the unrest in our society there's still an endless supply. You see, the Lord is recalibrating our thinking. He's repositioning us so that we get to that point where when we see Christ walking in the room, we go, what did you do to me? That's where we need to be, church. 
revival. We need to be revived. We discussed last time that the enemy keeps throwing the three deadly Ds at us. Doubt, discouragement, distractions. He continues to assault us. But I said in last teaching, it's a but God moment. We are in a prophetic season of the church where the Holy Spirit is getting a handle on us and he is saying, you need more. A little dab won't do you. That's going to date me for a commercial. They used to put that stuff in their hair and slick it back. My, oh my gosh, my son, my son looks the most Greek and he his hair slicked back the other day and you know, he's got this new girlfriend and I was looking at him and I thought about that commercial with the thing. A little dab will not do the church today. We could get back by with that for a while. But yeah, amen. I had a dream a few years ago. In fact, I described this dream in the book that's out there called Tell Your Heart to Beat Again. And in the dream, I saw a figure. And the figure was not a male or a female. But it was a big yawn like this. Like that. And I woke up and sat in bed. And I know better than to wake up my husband with my dreams because he already thinks I'm wacky. <laughs> and I really want to, you know, kind of be together. I saw that big yawn and I sat up and I said, Father, is that you? Is that you? And I heard him say, this is the church, this was three years ago, this is the church that's beginning to wake up from a long sleep. They were lulled to sleep, and the church is beginning to wake up. And while the church was asleep, the world changed. So when they woke up, things were different. And anxiety came. Well, wait a minute. What happened to, to, to the old ways? What happened? Are we on a new normal? What's going on here? And I really think that there is potentially, it's potentially true that this is where we are right now. That we have woken up and we see everything's changed. Now listen to me, precious sisters in Christ. This is not meant to be a negative thing. Because if God allowed those things to happen and he is shoring us up and empowering us, then in this moment, the enemy wants us to look around and go, oh, it's, we're like that frog that I talked about, and we're just going to drown in this cream. No, he wants us to be the other frog that begins to, to churn and churn and creates an island where he hops out. He wants to use that to empower us. He wants us to see what he is doing, not what the enemy's doing. My biggest concern is the church is, you know, sort of waking up and seeing that things are different, is that there is this sense of dread that the world is going to hell in a handbag, okay? But it's not. Because if it were, then where's Jesus? Has he stepped off his throne and said, I'm done with you people? Has he gone? Is he not seated at the right hand of the Father? Is he not praying for you and for me? Is he not praying for the world and our country? Yes, he is. He hasn't gone anywhere. When we wake up, the enemy's gone, gotcha. You're angry, right? You're frustrated, right? And the Lord says, settle down. And now it's time to allow the Holy Spirit to begin with living water to re-engage you with me, to hear my voice, to see with my eyes, to hear with my ears. And sometimes it just takes hard times to get there. So that was my dream. We have grown weary. 
but we have been awakened as a sleeping giant with resolve and determination. Some people, and this is a little bit of a warning, I say it with love, some people don't want to travel here where I'm going. Some people want to sit, my friend always says, get off your pity pot. Some people want to sit on their pity pot and they can't quite make the exchange over for the but God moment to see so weary, so tired, I get it. But those that have been awakened, that are beginning to see that God is um, at work, are like an awakened giant. It's like a sleeping giant that's awakened with resolve and determination to follow our call, to be reignited and refreshed um, uh, again in the Holy Spirit, to follow the call to be the city on a hill and to light up our world that is desperate for what we carry. And here's the deal. It is really easy to stay in our holy huddles. I much prefer to be with you all because you're smiling back at me and going yes and amen. And it feels so great and you're making me feel, but we got to walk out that door and get slapped around when we get outside, amen? We got to walk out that door and hear the news and the anger or whatever it is. But the truth is we leave our holy sacred huddles and we go out for the purpose of the world. It isn't for us to hold on to. It's for us to pour back out to a world. The Japanese Admiral Izoroko Yamamoto described, I said that pretty good, didn't I? <laughs> described the U.S. after the attack on Pearl Harbor. I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with terrible resolve. You all, that's us. That's us. The church has been awakened as a sleeping giant. Like I said in my last talk, we are not the underdog. If we think we're the underdog, we're going to act like an underdog. If we think that we are giant slayers, we're going to act like giant slayers with our sling. This moment has been to empower us. So on the front end of this teaching, we're going to talk about three things. One is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the counterfeit. It's going to answer the what. We're going to look at the what of pressing on. Number two, we're going to look at two scriptures that paint a picture of what it looks like to press on. We're going to look at Philippians and Exodus. And the third is we're going to answer the question, what does this have to do with us? So the goal is to help us understand the importance as Christians that our society is moving in one direction, but we begin to press on the power of the Holy Spirit to be the culture changers, to be the move, to allow the Holy Spirit to move our faith in this moment and in this hour. But we have to understand the first principle. There is the kingdom of God when Jesus said, repent for my kingdom is at hand. We have to understand that he ushered in new wine, new wineskins. And we have to understand that that kingdom he ushered in for time immortal. What word am I thinking of? Eternal. And then we have the kingdom of the counterfeit. And the kingdom of counterfeit is over there stirring and stirring the two kingdoms opposed to one another. The kingdom of God's purpose is to establish God's word, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy. This is what the kingdom of God's purposes are. Number one, establish his word. Two, to destroy the works of the, the devil. And three, to advance God's kingdom through 
the kingdom citizens. We are not of this world. And if we're angry and frustrated like I have been, then you know what? It's on me because I've become too much like the world. The kingdom of counterfeit, on the other hand, is to negate God's word. Did God really say? Remember? So the kingdom of the counterfeit's purpose, this is their mission statement, if you will, vision statement, negate God's word. Anytime a word comes and you receive it, the enemy wants to snatch it. Number two, he comes to rob and steal and destroy. Now, Jesus said, I've come to destroy the works of the devil, his vision statement, but this one from the enemy is, I've come to rob and steal and destroy. What do you have in your bag of goodies that God wants to steal from you? And the third is the enemy comes to advance his kingdom, the counterfeit kingdom, to fulfill his purposes, and the battle is not against flesh and blood, but he often uses people. That's why last session... I talked about our need to receive the love of God and to be able to pour it back out. Because in this moment in time, agape love, supernatural, above the love, above the natural, is very, very necessary so that we can love like that. I gave you an example a little bit about Goliath and King David. And what was really interesting when I was researching this uh, for the sermon that I was describing earlier, I was amazed at how when they were in the Valley of Elah, okay, that was the valley of an area with ridges and valleys called the Shephelah area. In that area was beautiful. And what the Philistine army was trying to do was divide Israel in two. They wanted to take the high ground, the highlands. And so they ended up meeting the Israelites on one side and the Philistines on the other. And as you know, they were deadlocked in the Valley of Elah. And so what happened is the Philistines said, we're going to send our strongest man to come out and fight this battle, okay? And that was a giant. Now, that was a little unfair. He was six foot nine. He has a javelin and a sword and all this bronze armor. He's coming out there like this. And they said, now you Israelites, now you send your strongest man. Now, who would sign up for that battle? I mean, everybody's like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And little David comes out with his little sling. Now, they were deadlocked in that place. And as I was preparing and prepping for that, I realized that's sometimes like us. We get into this situation where we are deadlocked in our faith, where we have one foot in the world and one foot in the counterfeit kingdom, and we don't even know it where we have one foot that's really imbibing of the wrong spirit. You know, one of the things that the Lord's been working on in my life is to come to meet people in the opposite spirit. If they come in anger, then you come in love. If they come in... So when those oppositional things come, to come in the opposite spirit, in other words, to come with the kingdom spirit as opposed to the enemy. Well, when we have been deadlocked, in a place where our spiritual ground, if you will, has been at a standstill, I'm certain that the Lord must have said, it's time to allow a little bit of shaking up, like I did with Job, so that the deadlock can be released. You're David. You're a giant killer. You have training and equipping in the Word of God like no other weapon that the world can use against you or me. The enemy has tried to lull us to sleep 
or to keep us in a quasi half asleep, half awake, keeping us from pressing on in our faith, from not participating in the advancement of the kingdom, or what is just as, as important that we understand, or we're actually deadlocked in our faith. We can't move forward because we're in the valley of Elah. But the body's waking up. I live across the street from St. Andrew's Mount Pleasant Church. And the night that the church burned down, I had my doors open and I could smell smoke. And I had my grandchildren upstairs and so we had done a bonfire that night. So of course, naturally, I ran up, you know, looked for the bonfire. It was out. I ran upstairs to check on the three kids. They were fine. I started running around. This was at about 2.30 in the morning. And I just kept running all over. And all of a sudden, I looked out in my yard. I mean, literally, literally, I'm almost right across from the church. And I saw these fire embers across the whole lawn. And I knew that something very near, it wasn't my house. So I woke up my husband. Now, here's a man that literally gets woken up all night long with the calls for the hospital. He would not wake up. I said, something's on fire. You know, I guess he's so tired all the time. He jumps out of bed and he goes, well, let's put it out. I said, I, I, we're not talking a little fire. We're talking like embers across my entire yard. And he runs out and he looks around and, and it was quiet except for the embers across my grass. It was very eerie. I said, well, let's figure out where it is. He ran across, he saw it was the church. And then he looked at me and he said, what do we do? I said, call, our, call Bishop Wood, call him. I mean, we need to tell them the church is on fire. And as you all know, the church burned down to the ground. Now, why am I telling that story? That is a real life metaphor of the seemingly, I use the word seemingly, destruction that the church has been facing. Perhaps it's biblical illiteracy, which is one of my main things right now. Perhaps we know we're in a post-Christian world. We know we're an upside-down world, et cetera, et cetera. We were devastated when that church burned down. But here's your but God moment again. It was rebuilt. It took like 30-something months, but it was rebuilt so much better. Let's push a pause button on that. What the enemy intends for evil, my friends, God intends for good. He has a plan that trumps every plan of the enemy. The cross gives us victory, but it also gives us triumph. The cross, is the definition is of victory, is to defeat your opponent. But triumph is when you take it a step further. You defeat your opponent, and then you parade uh, your opponent in the streets like they did in ancient Rome, where they had, when they conquered someone, they paraded them through the streets and they said, see all this devastation? We're taking it back. Your victory is the power of the cross and triumph is taking back what the enemy has stolen. Our church, my church, received more after the burning. This year, we've been in a forest burn. We own some property with pine trees. And every three or four years, we have to burn that, those things. And every time we do it, I cringe. I don't like it as these beautiful trees. But every time we see new growth. And so that is the period of history we are in even a church that's divided, in a world that's divided. God is the restorer of the breach. Do you believe that? 
He is the Redeemer. He not only will give you victory and me victory and us victory together, but he will parade our enemies in front of us and give us back the land in spades. And it is time that the church recognizes that we are not the underdogs. Hold our heads high. And in my book, making I think it's Making Space, I can't even remember um, the, name, the titles of them, Angela, I have to tell you. Wake up, church, rise up, and grow up. So now we're awakened, what do we do? I want to give two examples in the Word of God, one in Exodus, one in Philippians. And in Exodus, we see, we begin to see, just before the crossing of the Red Sea, the Lord says to Moses, consecrate yourselves to me, the firstborn. And he goes on, and they, they, the description in Exodus 13 says, the Pharaoh would not let the people go. You know the story, I don't need to tell you the story. But the part that I think is so profound, as we are in this time in the history of the world, that it is time for us to cross that Red Sea. But it's scary. Our enemies are running us down seemingly. Be careful that you don't agree with what the enemy is doing. Let's agree with what God is doing. Church burned down, church is much better. That is the way our Redeemer works. And we see the crossing of the Red Sea. Lord says to Moses, tell the people to turn back and encamp in front, I can't even pronounce this or even see it, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing the sea. He gave them very specific instructions, you all. This is important. This is a takeaway for you today. God is not always giving the same instructions to the church at the same time in different situations and in different seasons and in different hours, we're going to hear a different word and a fresh word. The church has to begin to hear the voice of God, to begin to hear his instructions, because one day he'll say, go north, and the next day he'll say, go south, and the next day, east and west. That's why in that first talk, I started out with deal with your fears. Because fear and faith can't coexist, and we have to hear the voice of God. If fear crowds us out, which is what the enemy's been trying to do, we can't hear our instructions whether to go north or south. And these instructions were very counterintuitive all through this, and the people got ticked off. Why'd you lead us in the wilderness? What's going on here? That's the way the church feels. I mean, why, God? Why you lead us in the wilderness? And God's saying, stop mumbling. Listen to me. Pay attention. Your faith is wavering, but I've come to strengthen what remains. We have to hear the voice of God. We have to get his directions. Instead of a direct route, he led them around by the desert road. And we feel that way. They were terrified. Some of us are terrified. If the enemy can keep us terrified and he can keep our eyes on what he's doing, he's like, that's my Selah. That's my amen. That's the counterfeit kingdom that we talked about. God wants us to cross over out of the deadlocked valley of Elah and get moving over here and hear his voice branch to vine, intimacy with Christ. Let me tell you something. He's speaking all day long. But so is the crowd of the world and the flesh and the devil. It's hard 
in this season but God. They were terrified. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us out to die? Do you feel that way? We're your church. Where are you, God? What are you doing? He's just burning down some of your bridges so you can't go back. He's just taken away some of your idols so you won't raise them up. He's just moving some things and repositioning the church. Listen, we've got warriors in this church. See your bishop sitting back there. We have leaders like him and his wife, Allison, who have been fighting for us. Are you praying for them? Are you recognizing that the bishop and his wife are leading a charge and they're weary and that you and I are weary. But the Lord is burning those things so that we can have a forest. I have never had an opportunity like I've been having lately. As I mentioned to you, all the people I've been talking to, to bridge gaps, to see what God is doing. Because if the enemy can keep us so isolated and separated, no matter where you're coming from, we're not going to agree. We're all these different denominations, all these things. But suddenly, we're polarized, and we begin to come back together, and we're hearing a new, fresh song. The enemy wants us to be divided. But the message that Moses gave his people was move on, wake up, press on. God is going before you. He says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites, God said this, to move on, rouse yourself, raise your staff, and the sea will divide. So the summary of Exodus, God will fight for us and for his kingdom. Things may look worse before they look better. It may appear that God is, is leading you down a scary or a counterfeit path, but he knows the best way. It may appear in a post-Christian world we are, we are losing the war, but God is a way forward. It may appear that the counterfeit kingdom is winning, but God always wins. That's what the people of faith since the beginning of time have seen. God always trumped. He always went out ahead. I play bridge, so I use that. Anybody else play bridge? That's that expression. Philippians 3, Paul writes, forget what lies behind. Listen, he was in prison. And in prison, he's saying all these things. We might feel that way. But we have to let go of what lies lay behind us. Everybody says, when are we going to get back to normal? I don't want to get back to normal. We were asleep. We were lulled. I was, I told you, the Lord told me, I'm standing in the vestibule. And I'm sitting there thinking, patting myself on the back, Ooh, you are just so spirit-filled, and you are sitting there dining on the feast that God's given you. And he's telling me this morning, you're out there starving to death. All of us, there's more. There's more. As citizens of the kingdom, we are in the epicenter of a battle. We do need to strain to see what lies ahead, but we must let go of the old in order to embrace the new. Now here's the problem, and here's where the battle rages. When we begin to obey God, and when we begin to empty out our backpacks 
When we begin to empty out our backpacks and surrender, suddenly the battle heats up. It rages. We're looking in our backpacks and we're ready to cross the Red Sea and we panic because what's in our backpack is familiar and what's in our backpack is important to us and significant and we paid a lot of money for it, sweat equity for it. We gave our lives for it and God says, well, I am so sorry. You can't cross that Red Sea with that thing, that stinking backpack on your, on your back. And you're like, but I'll take out a few things. Years ago, the Lord told me uh, there was a big plate, and I know this was in, a, in my quiet time, and I, all I remember, my eyes were closed, and I saw this plate, and there's all these things on the plate, and the Lord said, for the next 30 days, we're going to take everything off your plate. And I'm like, woohoo! I'd love to do that. I was tired. But by the time it got to my children and my husband, I'm like, I'm not taking them off. I let go of the ministry. I let go of healing prayer, which I love. I let go one by one. When it got there and the Lord said, take that off, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not taking my family off. God, you, this is what you gave us. I cried and I cried and I knew what he meant. He wanted everything out of my backpack. Everything surrendered. And by the time that 30 days was over and I was in prayer, all I saw was a gold plate. Now the Lord said, put them back on. Reconsecrate them to me. Probably consecrate them to me. They're mine. They're mine to worry over. They're mine to take care of. Now you can put the mantle for, for teaching back on. But you were wearing it sloppily. It's not about us. Here's where the battle rages, when we have to take those things that we hold near and dear to our hearts and surrender them. When I went to Africa with Bishop Wood, I, I had, I mean, I was the only female, okay? So I had a lot of bags. <laughs> I had my makeup in one, and I had my rollers in one, and I had, you know, I had, um, Juliana Fletcher was with, was with me, the worship leader um, for Drawing You to God, and worships all over the city. She did pretty good. She had one little bag, but I did not. And I, we got to the airport and we were going to miss our plane. And Steve says to me, we're going to have to jog through the airport. I think this was in New York. And I didn't have tennis shoes on. I had heels on probably knowing me. And we're schlepping and I've got a bag and I've got this and I've got that. And I thought, I, I can't tell you how anxious I was as we had to run from one end to the other end of the airport. And that is the way I think the church feels. We feel laden. So it's time, friends, to take our backpacks and allow the Holy Spirit to empty them. In light of that, we're going to have a time of reflection. And we're going to just have some soft, quiet music. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit, What's in that backpack? Because it's time for me to be reignited. It's time for me to press on. And I want to, press, I want to cross the Red Sea. Will Jesus, the Son of Man, find faith on the earth when he returns in this room? Amen.